Welcome to episode 254 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about affirmative action and the 14th Amendment. In the last episode, we examined the history of affirmative action and walked through John Roberts' majority opinion and Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion in the recently handed down case of Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus Harvard, or generally called the affirmative action case, all of which hinged on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. In this episode, we're going to start with an examination of that clause and amendment and evaluate the majority's opinion through the lens of what the writers and ratifiers of that amendment meant and said at the time. And then for fun, we're going to walk through the laughable dissenting opinions for the case. Just a level set with you. My first gut reaction when I started putting these episodes together was to ask the question, why in the hell is the Supreme Court telling universities how to run their admissions process? For many of you, your gut reaction or answer to that question is likely, well, if the school gets federal money, then SCOTUS has jurisdiction. I get it. However, the whole federal money argument falls flat, if you ask me, since the federal government technically doesn't have any money. Disregard the printing that the Federal Reserve does, which is unconstitutional. The money in which the Fed throws around is our money. The Feds are simply redistributing it as they see fit. But that's a rabbit hole I don't want to dive into right now. Instead, I would rather pose my second favorite question after what about the baby in the abortion debate. And that is, where in the Constitution? Where in the Constitution is the power granted to any branch of the federal government to put their nose into the admissions process of a college or university? Well, as you saw in the last episode, the majority founded in the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. As much as I love Clarence Thomas, there are some serious problems with that conclusion. I want to spend some time fleshing that out. Beware, your history teachers or professors did not teach you what you're about to hear. In an effort to get us jump-started, here's a clip from episode 37, The Truth About the Bill of Rights, The Incorporation Doctrine. Now remember, the Constitution created the federal government. The states already existed, and they got together and agreed to a contract, the Constitution. In that contract was the creation of this general or federal government to which very few enumerated powers were granted. See Article 1, Section 8 for that list, or you can listen to episode 3. All other powers were left to the states. See, the founders hated centralized political power, i.e. King George. They fought a war to rid themselves of such and had no intention of repeating that mess in America. As you probably recall from middle school, the Bill of Rights are the first ten amendments of the Constitution. They were necessary because the states were concerned that the newly created federal government would usurp the powers of the states. So they required the amendments as protection against federal overreach. The first ten amendments do not grant any rights. They simply further define the limited nature of the federal government. Now, the next sentence is extremely important for you to understand, so please listen carefully. The Bill of Rights does not apply to the states. The Bill of Rights only applies to the federal government. Per the Constitution, states can pretty much do whatever they want short of the allowances in Article 1, Section 8. Why is that? because the founders assumed that local is better and more manageable. Plus, every state had its own constitution. As a matter of fact, the United States Constitution is a mirror image of many of the constitutions from the original 13 colonies. These state constitutions contained free speech and gun rights measures. They included provisions protecting its citizens from unreasonable search and seizures. 
Most every provision you see in the Bill of Rights came from a state constitution. Fast forward from the founding to 1868, the second founding, where the 13th and 14th Amendment was passed. For that history lesson, I will rely on Judge Roberts and Thomas's opinion from the last episode. Please go back and listen to that if you have not already. If you read through the writings and speeches of proponents of the 14th Amendment, you clearly can see how their intention was to embody the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Equal protection simply means that laws must be enforced the same against whites and blacks. If whites are guaranteed a right, then so are blacks. Things like the right to enter into contracts, own property, inherit property, travel freely, and access to the courts. The right to due process, in a nutshell, guaranteed procedural fairness for all people. Many in Congress at the time feared that future Congresses would overturn that Civil Rights Act. What Congress giveth, Congress can take away. So they opted for a constitutional amendment. The 14th Amendment was the result of their efforts. It's important to differentiate between what the drafters and ratifiers of an amendment said during the debate at the time than the opinion or interpretation of some guy or gal in a black robe a hundred years later. In episode 37, I quote a number of federal and state legislators as they debated the ratification of the 14th Amendment, all of whom clearly backed up the point that they were just codifying the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Howard J. Graham summed it up nicely when he wrote, quote, Virtually every speech in the debates on the amendments, the 14th Amendment, Republican and Democrat alike said or agreed that the amendment was designed to embody or incorporate the Civil Rights Act. Now, it's important for you to understand that the Bill of Rights does not apply to the states. I know this is a radical theory for many of you, but please stay with me. You may note that the Bill of Rights contains a very clear language. Congress shall make no law. Notice, it doesn't say anything like the state legislature shall make no law. There exists no founding era evidence that Congress or the state ratifiers intended for the protections included in the Bill of Rights to bind the states. Remember the clip from episode 37. The states created the federal government. They don't need any help. In fact, binding the states to the Bill of Rights would essentially create a federal veto over states, which is exactly where we are today. It's a massive expansion of the central government authority the exact opposite of the stated purpose of including the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. The preamble of the Bill of Rights specifically points to the federal government. If it had been meant to limit the states, the amendments would never have been ratified by three-fourths of them. For many of you, what you just heard sounds crazy. You never heard anyone say something like that. I understand completely. Until I started digging into this stuff, I was right there with you. But I don't want you to take my word for it. Perhaps you will be persuaded by the fact that the Supreme Court upheld the original intent of the 14th Amendment for upwards of 100 years. In episode 37, I offer up a number of cases as evidence, including the Slaughterhouse case in 1873, which was just a few years after the 14th Amendment was ratified. There's also a case in 1922, Prudential Insurance Company v. Cheek, Connecticut General Insurance Company v. Johnson in 1938, and Barctus v. Illinois in 1959. You can hear the details of each of those cases in episode 37. All of those cases deny that the 14th Amendment applies to the states. Arthur Brian Vanyo explains, quote, 
Over time, the court incorporated 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th Amendment prohibitions into the Due Process Clause. Then they incorporated right to have an abortion and the right to homosexual sodomy into the Due Process Clause. They restricted religious displays, term limits, welfare restrictions, school prayer, death penalty. But the 14th Amendment had nothing to do with the states, as I've already stated. It only restricted the federal government. Therefore, the Supreme Court's stole from the people their natural and constitutional authority to set the boundaries of such rights in their state governments, end quote. It all started with Gitlow versus New York in 1925, which read in part, quote, assumed that freedom of speech and press, which are protected by the First Amendment from abridgment by Congress, are among the fundamental personal rights and liberties protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment from impairment by the states. That is all that was needed to get the ball rolling. It's death by a million bad precedents. This idea is largely embraced by Americans because the feds need to protect them from out-of-control state governments. In fact, the opposite is true. The Supreme Court used incorporation to restrict the state's ability to restrict speech. In Gitlow v. New York, the court took that power away from the states. The state of New York already had a constitution. Remember, SCOTUS issues opinions, not rulings. Kings issue rulings. New York could have simply ignored them. Think about how perverted our constitutional system is today, regardless of your political leanings. When states pass strict gun control laws, what happens? Opponents to the restriction run to the federal courts and scream Second Amendment. Does the federal government possess the power to regulate state gun laws through the Second Amendment? No. When someone refuses to bake a cake for a homosexual couple, what happens? Opponents run to the federal courts and scream that the baker is violating their due process. Does the federal government possess the power to force commerce under some federal anti-discrimination law? No. When UNC and Harvard discriminate against white and Asian applicants, what happens? Students for Fair Admissions runs to the federal courts looking for relief. Are Harvard and UNC federal institutions? No. UNC is run by the state of North Carolina, and Harvard is a private university. If the state of North Carolina feels like the emissions policies violate the North Carolina Constitution, then they can go do something about it. If the state of Massachusetts feels the same about Harvard, go after them. But to rely on the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause is anti-constitutional. Sorry, Clarence. Relying on bad, settled law or precedent or stare decisis is not being an originalist. I go into a lot more detail in episode 37 about all this, so I encourage you to listen to that at some point if this topic interests you. Now, getting back to the recent SCOTUS affirmative action case, the least we can say about the majority opinion is that it's well-written, well-founded, and well-reasoned, although in flawed precedent or settled law. The opposite can be said about the dissent in this case. Justice Jackson and Sotomayor deliver what we have come to expect from liberal activist hack judges. They literally make shit up as they go. They cherry-pick their citations and develop their own judicial standards, all while ignoring the document they took an oath to protect and defend. Throughout the majority opinion, as well as Thomas's concurrence, the dissenting opinion gets ripped apart. Thomas points out how they conveniently leave out important precedent-setting cases. He rips their simplistic arguments, quote, the principal dissent wrenches our case law from its context, going to lengths to ignore the parts of that law it does not like. Roberts characterizes their argument as, quote, 
While the dissent would certainly not permit university programs that discriminated against Black and Latino applicants, it is perfectly willing to let the programs here continue. Which leads us to another teachable moment. Liberals do not really care about the issues that they espouse. They are only interested in power and control. In their heart, they are totalitarians or authoritarians. They think they are smart and well-educated. They went to the right schools. They think they are cultured and tolerant. But invariably, the truth comes out. They used to agree that human life is precious until they started worshipping the practice of killing tens of millions of innocent babies in the womb. Until they left the southern border open, inviting migrants to make their often deadly and injurious journey. Until their president fled Afghanistan, leaving tens of thousands in the hands of barbarians. Until they allowed a steady flow of fentanyl into the country, killing over 100,000 American youth. Until they pushed, pressed, and propagandized the world to take an often toxic, sometimes deadly, untested so-called vaccine. They used to believe in free and fair elections until Trump came along. They used to believe in free speech unless it's speech that they don't like, so they built the censorship industrial complex. Before I walk through Associate Justice Jackson's dissenting opinion, I want to reflect on her place on the court in light of the topic at hand, affirmative action. Do you think in her heart Jackson really feels like she belongs on the Supreme Court? Or does Kamala Harris really feel in her heart that she was the best pick for VP? How could they? when Biden specifically said he was picking people for those positions based on their gender and or skin color. What about Justice Sotomayor? She was nominated to the Supreme Court by Obama because she was, quote, a wise Latino. Those are Obama's words. Kamala, for sure, has demonstrated that she is an intellectual lightweight. She wasn't qualified to be a California Attorney General. She wasn't qualified to be a U.S. Senator. And she sure as hell wasn't the most qualified person to be Vice President. Check out episode 111, The Truth About Kamala Harris, if you want to learn more. Back to Justice Jackson. Being that she is new to the court, only time will tell, but if her dissenting opinion in this case is any indication, she will long be remembered as a lightweight. In his opinion, Thomas put it this way, I have long believed that large racial preferences in college admissions stamp blacks and Hispanics with a badge of inferiority. They thus taint the accomplishments of all those who are admitted as a result of racial discrimination, as well as all those who are the same race as those admitted as a result of racial discrimination, because no one can distinguish those students from the ones whose race played a role in their admission. Consequently, when blacks and now Hispanics take positions in the highest places of government, industry, or academia, it is an open question whether their skin color played a part in their advancement. The question itself is the stigma, because either racial discrimination did play a role, in which case the person may be deemed otherwise unqualified, or it did not, in which case asking the question itself unfairly marks those who would succeed without discrimination. He's basically saying all this affirmative action, leveling the playing field, is a poison. Whether you are for or against it, the result leaves legitimate questions about those who supposedly benefit from it. Jackson's dissent is nothing more than a parrot of the leftist view that African-Americans specifically and minorities generally, all of them, well, except Asians apparently, are victims. She basically argues that blacks are locked into a permanent inferior position in society, and any disparity between them and other races is due to systemic racism, the legacy of slavery, and the nature of inherited wealth. Ironically, the only systemic racism going on here is the admission standards at Harvard and UNC. Systematic racism towards whites and Asians. 
No matter what the question is, the answer by race hustlers like Jackson is always racism. The idea that disparity in outcomes is not proof of discrimination is lost on our brainwashed liberal friends. If blacks underperform on the SAT, it's due to slavery and Jim Crow. If the average white family earns more than the average black family, it's due to slavery and Jim Crow. If a higher percentage of blacks are incarcerated, slavery, Jim Crow. White privilege explains all the advances of whites and all the disadvantages of blacks. Jackson's dissent was described by, by somebody, I don't remember, but they said something like, her arguments are the opposite of what a KKK member would have said back in 1920. Thomas calls Jackson's view, quote, an insult to individual achievement and cancerous to young minds seeking to push through barriers rather than consign themselves to permanent victimhood. Jackson is opposed to discrimination unless it is the good type against whites and Asians. She makes that point while discussing Asian Americans. In a cryptic sentence, she basically says that the discrimination being imposed on Asian Americans is good discrimination. It's fine with her if a black kid with a 4.0 GPA and a 1200 on the SAT gets chosen over an Asian kid with a 4.0 GPA and a 1500 SAT score. That presumably, in the mind of Judge Jackson, is good discrimination. Now, if you are a member of the normals, you are likely confused. You probably thought discrimination is bad. All discrimination. See how easy it is to be a liberal? You can just float around with no principles, feeling your way through life. You can remain in your bias-affirming bubble and never hear an opposing opinion. Just an observation, but I notice that these same people never advocate for an end to discrimination based on political ideology. Building on the good discrimination argument, the dissent argues that race-based college admissions are part of solving the systemic racism of the past. Yet as Roberts and Thomas point out in their opinions, neither university defends its admissions system as a remedy for past or historic discrimination. In other words, Jackson is just making that shit up. Comic Dave Smith had a novel idea when he said, quote, maybe we should enslave white people for 100 years, plus 100 years of Jim Crow, and we'll call it even. Thomas further characterizes Jackson's dissent this way, quote, rather than focusing on individuals as individuals, her dissent focuses on the historic subjugation of black Americans, invoking statistical racial gaps to argue in favor of defining and categorizing individuals by their race. He expands on this later, characterizing Jackson's dissent as, quote, even if some whites have a lower household net worth than some blacks, what matters to Judge Jackson is that the average white household has more wealth than the average black household, end quote. The elephant in the room is people like Jackson, they're racist. She's blinded by skin color. She wrote, quote, ultimately ignoring race just makes it matter more, end quote. That sounds racist to me. Everything must be seen through a lens of race, which ironically is what a racist would do. She has no interest in enforcing the 14th Amendment. She is only interested in enforcing her party's agenda, which is to continue with the grievance society to perpetuate the blacks are victims narrative, which is racist. Thomas goes out of his way to state the obvious, which of course is lost on brainwashed liberals like Jackson. Quote, not all disparities are based on race. Not all people are racist. And not all differences between individuals are ascribable to race. End quote. Jackson unapologetically argues that checking the black race box on your college application should give you additional points over other non-blacks. I got to give her credit for consistency, but 
that argument is so shallow, stupid, and so easily destroyed, I almost feel bad. Take the NBA, for instance. Can we argue that the reason the NBA is mostly black is due to discrimination against white people? Well, health. Come to think of it, she probably wouldn't bat an eye in answering that criticism because, as Roberts and Thomas point out, I can't remember which, in her mind, it's only discrimination if there are bad impacts to blacks. Detrimental impacts to any other population does not meet her definition. I caution you all the time, when dealing with the ignorant leftists and confident yet ill-informed, mind-numb Democrat voters, you must be on alert for their inevitable move to subjectivity or making up new terms or changing the definition of existing words, like vaccine and marriage and woman. Well, come to think of it, they can't even define that. The science is settled on climate change, but you need to ignore the science when it comes to gender and the COVID vaccine because, golly, gender is fluid and the friggin' vaccine is safe and effective. Now we have good discrimination, kind of like social justice and white privilege. Can't just have standalone discrimination and justice and privilege. They must hijack the language in order to prevent anyone from challenging them. You must knock that shit down at the earliest opportunity possible. They are setting up a society where they make the rules and no one's allowed to oppose them. Back to Jackson's dissent. She advocates for racial preferences in perpetuity. Why? Of course she does. The grievance society must continue in perpetuity. At the end of the day, Jackson is basically a Marxist. She calls on us to do what the experts tell us to collectively arrive at the best solution, which of course in her mind is racial discrimination against certain groups, just not blacks. To which Thomas had this to say in his opinion, quote, We cannot now blink reality to pretend, as the dissents urge, that affirmative action should be legally permissible merely because the experts assure us that it is good for black students. Though I do not doubt the sincerity of my dissenting colleagues' beliefs, experts and elites have been wrong before, and they may prove to be wrong again. In part for this reason, the 14th Amendment outlaws government-sanctioned racial discrimination of all types. The stakes are simply too high to gamble. Then as now, the views that motivated Dred Scott and Plessy have not been confined to the past, and we must remain ever vigilant against all forms of racial discrimination. More from Thomas, quote, Justice Jackson's race-infused worldview falls flat at every step. Individuals are the sum of their unique experiences, challenges, and accomplishments. What matters is not the barriers they face, but how they choose to confront them. And their race is not to blame for everything, good or bad, that happens in their lives. A contrary myopic worldview based on individual skin color to the total exclusion of personal choices is nothing short of racial determinism. The reaction of the left to this case is predictable. The court is racist. The people who agree with the court are racist. We need to pack the court with liberals so we can, what, continue discriminating? Biden said this is not a normal court. They pound the table over upsetting precedent. They said the same thing about overturning Roe v. Wade, which allowed the killing of innocent babies in the womb, resulting in 60 million lives snuffed out. And this damn court is just willy-nilly ending that precedent. Colleges and universities have been discriminating for decades, and this damn abnormal court just willy-nilly ends the practice. Again, the intellectual laziness of these jackasses is amazing. For example, an enterprising journalist could ask one of these rabid pro-discrimination yokels something like, 
Do you feel the same way about the overturning of the precedent of separate but equal set by Plessy v. Ferguson by the Brown versus Board of Education case? Knowing these losers, they probably just say, of course not. That was bad precedent. This is good precedent. All men are created equal means all men are created equal. And yet the left is arguing that in this case, all men are created equal except whites and Asians. If you are black or Hispanic, you can have mathematically lower set of criteria, unequal or inferior, and be taken over a mathematically superior white or Asian applicant. Speaking of the normals in the audience who are understandably nervous about voicing your opinion on something like affirmative action for fear of being called a racist, take heart because a recent New York Times poll demonstrates that half of Americans disagree with taking race and ethnicity into account in admissions decisions. So half of America, I guess, are racist because they don't recognize good discrimination. We have yet another policy that the left is on the wrong side of, and yet they cannot take their foot off the gas despite the fast approaching cliff. Here's the most galling part of this whole situation. The left never permits a real discussion. They never offer up any solutions to solve any of the systemic problems that lead to the disparities. They just point fingers at other people, other races, and blame them. Question. Generally speaking, which political party typically opposes efforts to break up the corrupt teachers' unions that do nothing for students? Which political party typically opposes fixing the public school system by expanding charter schools, firing bad teachers, implementing school vouchers? All of those real-life solutions could improve academic performance for everyone, but could be particularly beneficial to students stuck in inner-city hellholes. Who opposes all those efforts? The doomsday cult, formerly known as the Democratic Party, of course. Here's another question. Generally speaking, which political party typically opposes efforts or even discussions of decreasing the percentage of black children growing up in single-parent households? You can't even talk about that or you will be called a racist. Or what explains the fact that the most violent cities in the country tend to be majority-minority and run by Democrats. In both cases, the doomsday cult, formerly known as the Democratic Party, would rather hold the black community down and make promises they never keep to make things better and promising to be their savior against the dastardly racist Republicans. These people are incorrigible. They wish to pursue racial discrimination in order to end racial discrimination, but they don't want racial discrimination to end because it kills their power. Their power to divide the country along racial lines and claim to be fighting for the little guy. The little guy that they refuse to help in any other real, tangible way. We covered a lot of ground in this episode. It was a target-rich environment. Hopefully you enjoyed the quick history lesson about the 14th Amendment, a perspective you will likely not hear very often. Don't forget to check out episode 37 for a deep dive into that topic. And that's the truth about affirmative action and the 14th Amendment. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and share episodes with your friends.